Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. We're going to pick up in Ephesians 5 this morning. And uh, we're going to continue teaching through Ephesians. Uh, we have a few weeks left in Ephesians. Then we're going to take a short break around Easter. Then we will pick up with First and Second Timothy uh, after Easter because Paul was the uh, sorry Timothy was the pastor of the church in Ephesus, and so it's a good continuation in our study on Ephesus. Uh, this morning, I want to. Uh, open up by telling you about uh, kind of a an approach to parenting that my wife and I have adopted. Uh, we have three kids, uh, a nine-year-old son, a six-year-old daughter, and as of this weekend, a one-year-old uh, little boy. And, uh, you know, if you're a parent, you know that there are some things that you can make your kids do, and then there are other things you can't make them do, right? I can make my kids eat their vegetables, I can make them brush their teeth, I can make them go to bed, but I can't make them like sports, I can't make them uh, like chicken wings, you know, uh, there are certain things that I can't force on them, and one of those things is I can't make my kids follow Jesus. That is a decision that they are going to have to make for themselves at some point. So while I can't make my kids follow Jesus... What I can do is instruct them in what I call a biblical worldview. I want my kids to grow up knowing that there is a God, that the Bible is true and authoritative and inerrant. I want my kids to grow up knowing that prayer works, prayer has an impact. I want my kids to grow up knowing that there uh, is a people of God that we call the church and that that people of God will one day represent every tongue and tribe and nation. I want my kids to understand that there is a devil and that the devil is real and he's out to get you. I, don't, I mean, I don't say it like he's out to get you, but you understand he's out to distract you. He's out to tempt you. <coughs> he kill, kills and steals and destroys. Uh, I, you know, I try not to act like he's the boogeyman. He's out to get you. You know what I mean? So one of the things, or one of the ways that we raise our kids to have a biblical worldview is by giving them biblical language. So, for instance, in our house, we use the word sin to refer to sin. Uh, We like to distinguish between sin and mistakes. Spilling your dinner on the floor is a mistake. It's not a sin, It's a mistake, and so we don't want our kids to think that God's judgment is coming toward them because they dropped their chicken nuggets on the floor. My judgment might be coming, but God's judgment isn't, right? On the flip side, I want my kids to know that sin is real, that that when you lie, when you cheat, when you steal, that's not a mistake, that's a sin. You understand what I'm saying? So I want my kids to know the difference between a sin and a mistake. Another uh, set of terms that we are teaching our kids is the term foolish and wise, okay? Uh, My kids know that in my house, 
the F word is fool. It's the worst thing you can be is a fool. There's entire books of the Bible dedicated to not being foolish, right? So uh, the opposite of foolishness in the Bible is wise. Folly is like foolishness or wisdom. Uh, There's foolish people and there are wise people. And my kids are starting to wrap their head around that to be wise is a good thing and to be foolish is a bad thing. And so uh, what you've been teaching them about foolish foolishness is that it's not a good trait so we'll say you know what kind of behavior is this oh that's foolish behavior oh what kind of behavior is that that's wise behavior it's kind of funny actually sometimes to hear six-year-olds and nine-year-olds use words like fool and foolish or wise and wisdom but they are starting to get it through their heads i asked my son this week um what does a wise person do (coughs) or how does a person become wise and he said a wise person listens to their dad. I said, that's right, boy. Uh, now, that, it's kind of funny, but and, and I'm sure he didn't know that he was actually paraphrasing the book of Proverbs, which says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Listen to your father who begot you, and do not despise your mother when she is old. And so since I begot my kids... They should listen to my instruction, right? So when he says, that's right, James, you hear this? Okay. Uh, (coughs) When my son says you gain wisdom by listening to your dad, that's a nine-year-old's translation of Proverbs uh, 1 and Proverbs 23. So this morning we're going to pick up in Ephesians. We're going to talk about wisdom. We're going to talk about what Paul said wisdom looks like or what it meant to walk in. In wisdom. So we're going to start in Ephesians 5 15. Before we get to that, I want to review really quickly what we talked about last week because we're in this sequence of Paul giving instruction for them how to walk. Last week he said, walk in love and walk in light. Today he's going to tell us to walk in wisdom. There is a little bit of a pattern in Paul's teaching. In the first two verses of Ephesians 5, He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children (coughs) and walk in love. And in Ephesians 5, uh, 7 and 8, he says, therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So I just want to point out a pattern. He starts with this word, therefore. Therefore is Paul's way of kind of resetting the thoughts and calling their attention, okay? So when you read therefore, you should hear it kind of this way. Therefore, that's how you should hear therefore in the New Testament. So he starts with therefore, he's calling their attention. He's like, okay, now refocus here because we're about to dig into something. And then he tells them something about their identity. As beloved children, or you are light in the Lord. So there, let me get your attention. Let me remind you of your your identity. And now I'm going to tell you how to walk. Walk in love. Walk as children of light. And in Ephesians 5.15, uh, 5, here we are again. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So we've looked at walk in love. We looked at walk in light. Today, walk in wisdom. What does it mean to walk in wisdom? What does it mean to be wise? What we're going to look at today is not 
the entirety of what the Bible has to say on this topic. The Bible has much to say on this topic, but we're going to look at this particular passage, what Paul tells the Ephesians in chapter 5, walking in wisdom looks like or how it's demonstrated. (coughs) Did I read? I didn't read the whole passage yet, right? I didn't do that yet. Okay, that was a test. Thank you for knowing. Okay, so Paul says, Therefore, (coughs) be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Okay, so he starts off with walk as, not not as unwise, but as wise. So we're going to say walk in wisdom. What does it mean to walk in wisdom? This is uh, seven verses, but it's really only three sentences, or it's three ideas. When Paul unpacks this, it's, it's only three ideas. The first is that a wise person makes the most of their time. The second is that a wise person understands the will of the Lord. And the third is that a wise person overflows with the Holy Spirit. Okay, We're going to go through these one idea at a time. In verse 16, he says, Make the most of your time because the days are evil. So the first demonstration of wisdom that he's telling them about is making the most of their time. Did you know that time is like money? You're going to run out someday. You can make more but there is a finite, finite amount. You should save it. You, sh- you spend it. You can waste it. I mean, the two primary resources that you have in your life that you have to steward or manage are time and money. Now, a lot of times we don't think about what it means <coughs> to steward our time. We don't give it a lot of thought to that. Now, because, you know, if we go broke, if there's no money in the bank, we know it, right? I don't have any money to do anything. Sometimes running out of time catches us off guard and we realize I don't have any time to do anything, you know? And, you know, you only have 24 hours. (coughs) You only have 24 hours in a day. You only have 365 days in a year. Unless it's a leap year, like this year, then you get 366. You do not have more time than another person today. We all have the same 24 hours, right? The same 60 minutes in an hour, the same 60 seconds in a minute. Paul's telling them to make the most of their time because the days are evil. Here's what he means by that. Uh, in, Paul explained uh, that the, right now we live in a period of time where Satan is known as the prince of the power of the air. Satan is active on the earth right now. He is causing us, he is tempting us, he's causing us to make bad decisions, he is deceiving us, he is tricking us, and not only us, but the whole world, right? The days are evil. If you are not intentional about how you spend your time, you will probably drift into foolishness, right? It's almost like foolishness has a gravitational pull. And unless you fight against it, that's the way it's going. Kind of like a river, right? A river has a current. Sin in this world has a current to it. And if you don't pay attention to it and fight against it, you will get dragged down with that current. So Paul's saying, make the most of your time. 
because the days are evil. The momentum of our culture is evil. And so you're going to have to be intentional about fighting against that. Now, make the most of your time does not mean stay busy all the time. I don't want you to hear this and think, oh, I've got to get busier. No, please don't. In fact, you may be too busy. You can, you know, you can be so busy that you're wasting time. You know what I mean? Oh, okay, that touched a nerve. Okay, you can be so busy that you're wasting time because you're putting a lot of energy and a lot of time towards stuff that's not important. So don't say, oh, I'm going to make the most of my time. I'm going to go join five clubs and ten Bible studies. No, you don't have to do all that. Find out what the Lord's calling on your life is, your purpose, and put all of your resources toward that. Does that make sense? Activity... Busyness is not the same thing as spirituality, okay? And you can actually be very shallow in your spirituality and fill it up with the, bu- the buzz of busyness. And sometimes we stay busy because it makes us feel important, like we're in demand. And that is just lying to yourself. So uh, I am not talking about making the mo- most of your time by staying busy, Here's what I'm talking about. Make the most of your time by being intentional and purposeful with every minute of your day. Every minute is like a dollar. It should have a purpose. It should have a design. It should have uh, a calling on it. And so be purposeful. When you get up in the morning, be purposeful about your morning routine. Be purposeful about your commute to wherever you have to go during the day, work or school or wherever. Be purposeful about your occupation, your time with your family. Be purposeful about it. You know, the number one thing that robs our time of its purpose is hiding our face behind a cell phone while, while our kids are right in the room with us. You know what I'm saying? So, okay, all the, all the parents are amending that. The kids are probably like, ugh. But you understand what I'm saying. Make the most of that time <coughs> because you have a limited amount. Uh, Be intentional, be purposeful about your use of time. The New American Standard (coughs) Study Bible says it this way, the foolish person has no strategy for life, and they miss opportunities to live for God in an evil environment. I would also say, (coughs) say it this way, uh, if you make a, a mistake, I've done this in my life, I have made mistakes that have cost me weeks, months, maybe years, and I'm like, oh, that mistake set me back two years, or actually I should say it this way, that sin set me back two years, and, I, and I'm like, is there, God, am I going to have a second chance, or a third chance, or a fourth chance, or a fifth chance, I, I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, me, or I might need a sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth chance, you know what I'm saying? Listen, I have good news. God does not stop giving you chances, okay? That's, repentance is this invitation from God for a 10th chance, an 11th chance, a 12th chance. You will not run out of God's grace, but you will run out of time someday. The restriction is not on God's grace. It's on your body. You know what I'm saying? So I, I want to encourage you, but also wake you up a little bit. That you do have limited time. There's not limited grace. God will give you a million chances if you'll start over a million times. 
But you are eventually, sorry to say this, you're going to expire. You're going to run out of time. There'll be extra grace left over, but you'll hit the end of your time. And so make the most of your time, okay? Take those fresh opportunities when God offers them. So a wise person makes the most of their time. A wise person also understands the will of the Lord. So I mentioned that this is three sentences or three ideas. Sentence number one is verses 15 and 16. Then there's a period. He starts a fresh sentence or idea in verse 17 where he says, do not be foolish. Okay, so we're still talking about foolishness and wisdom, right? We haven't really changed topic. It's just another idea. He says, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, period. That's the shortest sentence in the entire passage. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, which is his way of saying, uh, it is wise to understand the will of the Lord. It is foolish to not understand the will of the Lord. What... Knowing God's will is probably one of the primary things that Christians want in their lives. What is God's will? And often when we talk about God's will, we're talking in specifics. Many, many people want to know what is God's will <coughs> for my life. I mean, what, and when we ask that question, it's usually like, what job am I supposed to have? Or who am I supposed to marry? Or who, where am I supposed to live? Those are the kind of things that we're often asking when we're asking about God's will. But God's will is much bigger than what job you should take or where you should live or who you should marry. Paul, just earlier in Ephesians, in chapter 1, tells us the foundational piece of God's will. And here's some news. It's not about you. The foundational piece of God's will... Paul mentions it in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. It says, He made known to us the mystery of His will, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ. That's the foundation of God's will, that He is going to sum up all of history in Jesus, that there is going to be a time where Jesus is going to return and Jesus is going to reign, okay? That... There is going to be a church that has every tongue and tribe and nation represented in it. That it says in Colossians 1, all of creation is held together by Jesus and he sustains it. So that's the foundation of God's will. The summing up of all things in Christ to the glory of God. So question number one about what's God's will should be, what fits with God's plan to sum all things up in Jesus? What fits with God's plan to glorify Jesus? Does that make sense? That's the foundation. Okay, that's the solid rock foundation. Now, you can also learn God's will. This foundation starts to build. Okay, you also learn God's will by knowing the scripture. God has revealed his will in the Bible. So, you know, we know this. The foundation is the summing up of all things in Christ. So then the question would be, how are you going to do that, God? We learn how he's going to do that from the Bible. We learn that he's going to return from the Bible. We learn that there's going to be a, a church from every tongue, tribe, and nation from the Bible. We, we learn uh, that he's going to save people and set people free. So we discover that through Scripture. So you can know a lot, an awful lot, about God's will simply by studying Scripture. You know, you can find out whether it's God's will for you to lie to your employer I mean, just a guess, would that be God's will? 
No, right? I mean, there's a pretty clear commandment about that, right? Uh, How about, like, (coughs) kill your neighbor? Okay, I'm, I'm giving you easy ones. I need some slam dunks today, okay? Yeah, we know clearly that's not God's will, right? So just from studying <coughs> Scripture, we learn an awful lot about God's will. So the foundation is this. I want you to look at this like a pyramid, okay? Foundation is summing up of all things in Jesus. Then the next level is the words of Scripture. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Anyone who hears my words and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on a rock. Okay? So that's the second. Here's the third level. Okay. I know Jesus wants to sum all things up in himself. I know God says that if I'm a Christian, I should live my life a certain way. But I still don't know what job I should take or who I should marry or whether I should go to school. There's no Bible passage that says this. When I was young and hoping to get married, I I looked everywhere. There was no passage that told me who to marry. Not even in the book of James. It wasn't in there. Get it? Because my name's James? Okay, all right. I, you know, so I had, I had this. I said, I knew, I know God does all things to glorify himself. He's going to sum all things up in Jesus. Okay, I know that. So, Whoever I marry, it's got to move in that direction. The summing up of all things in Christ. Okay, I also know that the Bible tells me I should marry a Christian because I'm a Christian. So that narrowed it down substantially, right? But I was like, God, can I get an address or a social security number or you know something like that? He wasn't giving me that, and I couldn't find a verse, you know? And so that is where the Holy Spirit comes in and guides you and leads you into wise decision-making. He led me to my wife, and my falling in love with my wife was very much a spiritual (coughs) experience as well as a romantic experience. I think you guys know I'm very romantic. So, just kidding. Uh, Let me give you another example. About six years ago, at that point, my wife and I were living right next door in the house that the church owns, and we were about to move. We were still staying in the area, obviously. We were going to move to Mayfair for the purpose of ministry. And we could not tell whether we were supposed to buy a house or rent a house. We just, like, there's no Bible passage that told us what to do. I was like, I could see either one of those fitting with the summing up of Christ in all things. Like, I just, I didn't know what to do. So, we were praying about it. And one night I had a dream, and in the dream we bought a house. And when I woke up in the morning, it was just crystal clear in my spirit, we're to buy a house. So I checked the bank account, still no money, (laughs) no down payment, nothing. I mean, and that was part of our stress. You know, like, it's, it was hard to find a down payment, to get, to come up with the money for a down payment. And so... I said, all right, Lord, I feel like you're leading us toward buying a house, but there's still not more money than there was when I went to sleep last night. So obviously something needs to happen. Within 45 days, the entire down payment appeared. It appeared through work, taking second jobs, working on the side. I was was 32 years old, pastor of our church, with a one-year-old son, sorry, a three-year-old son and a one-year, a newborn daughter, 
as picking up dog poop on the side to make extra money. That's how we got our down payment. We all, that's right. I, I'm, not, I'm not above that. I mean, I am now, but <laughs> at the, uh, I already got the house. We're already making our payments. I'm not picking up any more dog poop. But Well, for $100 an hour, I'll do it. But So, listen, we got it through extra jobs, extra work, saving. We did receive some surprises, you know, money that we didn't know was coming. But within 45 days, we went from not having it to having it. That is one of those things where uh, we learn the will of the Lord (coughs) through revelation and through some circumstances. Now listen, okay, the pyramid goes like this. The summing up of all things in Christ, the words of God in Scripture, and then the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Please don't flip that upside down where your circumstances are the foundation. That will crumble immediately. If you're just trying to figure out what God's will for your life is based on your circumstances, it's too cloudy. It's not clear enough. You won't be able to discern it. So, a wise person understands the will of the Lord. (coughs) And as well as uh, making the most of their time, then finally, a wise person overflows with the Holy Spirit. (coughs) In verse 18, it says, Do not get drunk with wine. For that is dissipation. Dissipation means like excessive waste. It's just, if, I don't know, if you've ever been drunk, so drunk that you lost an entire day, that is not making the most of your time, right? You lose an entire day or week or months or years of your life to that. Rather be filled with the Spirit. I love how Paul uses drunkenness as his contrasting picture of being filled with the Holy Spirit, because how can you tell if a person is drunk? By their speech, maybe? By their behavior? Their smell, yeah, their smell. You might be able to smell it on them. (coughs) So you can tell a person is drunk by the outward demonstration of drunkenness, right? How do you tell that a person's filled with the Holy Spirit? By the outward demonstration. Maybe they smell like they have the aroma of Christ. Maybe their speech is spirit-led speech. Maybe their actions are spirit-led actions. So Paul is using drunkenness. It's a, it's a contrast, but it's a picture. Uh, actually, the idea of drunkenness at this point, <coughs> these Ephesians, this is what they believed about drunkenness that it was associated with a loss of self-control, that you were either mad, meaning crazy, or that you were possessed by the god of wine who was named Dionysus. So they actually saw drunkenness as possibly you being possessed by a god. So what is Paul saying? Yeah, be possessed by God. But it's not Dionysus. It's the spirit of Jesus that possesses you. And the fact that Paul uses drunkenness as his illustration means, listen, there's a, you prove it by the outward demonstration. There has to be some actions that reveal your state, right? Like you know a person is drunk by the way they act. How do you know if a person's filled with the Holy Spirit? By how they act. There has to be some sort of outward expression of the, of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I chose to use the word overflow. You have to be overflowing with the Holy Spirit if you're filled with the Holy Spirit. There is no private 
filling of the Holy Spirit where you have this encounter with God where he fills you and then you just claim it all up and keep it to yourself. That is not how God designed that process. There should be fruit of the Holy Spirit that comes out. It should be demonstrated one way <coughs> or another. Now, let me, let me, let me warn you, because I'm going to hammer really hard. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, there's got to be some outward expression. Let's, right? Everyone hear that? So, there then becomes a temptation to fake it. Where you know, oh yeah, if, if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, I should, do, I should be expressing it somehow. So, uh, and I fall over. Or I shake. Or I start running around the room. Listen, uh, people have grown up in church where they have seen people have real encounters with God. They've seen it and they've said, I guess I should do that. And they copy it. So what happened on the inside didn't happen. But what happened on the outside, we fake. And I'm saying, you don't have to fake it. Don't fake it. It, it, it creates <coughs> so much confusion. I would also say, it's easy to fake. It's easier to fake some things than other things, right? So I believe God can do anything. There are times in the Bible where people got so touched by God that they hit the ground like they were dead, right? Um, but you know, they got up and they went on mission with God. You can fake falling on the ground. You cannot fake patience. You cannot fake love. You cannot fake long-suffering. You know what I mean? So the, the, those little short, brief thing, you know, that can be faked. What you cannot fake is the fruit of the Spirit. Does that make sense? So I'm telling you two things, and I hope you can hold them in tension. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you better prove it. But don't fake it. Okay? Does that make sense? We don't need anyone faking it. All right. All right. <coughs> now, uh, the filling of the Holy Spirit, how, how should we demonstrate that? What does the overflow of the Holy Spirit look like? Well, Paul actually spends a little bit of time talking about that. He says this. Uh, he said, you know, be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So, how does Paul expect the Holy Spirit to overflow out of them? Three things. Scripture, worship, and gratitude. He says, speak to one another with psalms, which many of you will know is an entire book of the Bible with 150 psalms in it. Not now, Paul may not have been limiting it to the book of Psalms, but just the idea of a psalm, a, a poem or song sung to God. He also says songs, uh, 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 psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Okay, so we have scripture overflowing out of us. We also have worship overflowing out of us. We're singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Now, again, I want to compare this to drunkenness because Paul did. If you've ever met a, a, a singing drunk person, right? Uh, sometimes I think happy drunk people are more spiritual than grumpy religious people, you know? 
I'm not suggesting you go that route, but, you know, like, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you should be singing, (coughs) making melody with your heart to the Lord. And then in verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God. Scripture, worship, gratitude, that's what the Holy Spirit's overflow in your life should look like. I mean, you get into a conversation, Scripture should just work its way in. Naturally, don't fake it. Don't try to be more spiritual than the person you're talking to. But if what you read in your devotions that morning flows naturally in, share that. Encourage people with it, right? Worship should not be a chore. It should be something that overflows naturally. Gratitude in all things. You know what that word all means in Greek? All. (laughs) All things. You go to work, they give you a promotion, praise God. You go to work, they give you a pink slip, praise God. Okay, I know no one really does that, but you should, right? I mean, and I know that's a hard thing, and I'm not trying to trivialize that. But giving thanks to God in all things means in difficult circumstances as well. You understand that God's about to reorder some stuff. God is in this. God is, God's control is not violated through difficult circumstances, right? So, our overflow (coughs) takes the form of uh, worship, scripture, and gratitude. Uh, When it says, uh, be filled with the Holy Spirit, in verse 18, we should translate it this way, continually be being filled with the Holy Spirit. This is not a one-time download. This is a continual experience that you have with God continually be being filled with the Holy Spirit so if you had a great encounter with God five years ago that really changed your life that's good you should be hungry for more of God today though and then you know what tomorrow should be hungry for God and the next day hungry for God you are continually to be being filled with the Holy Spirit there there is a first time but there should not be a last time Does that make sense? This is something we continue to pursue and push into. Now, okay, really quickly, I want to conclude. If you're like me, wisdom is appealing. I see the Bible talk about wisdom. I read the book of Proverbs, and I'm like, sign me up. I love that stuff. I love wise people. I love, you know, Mr. Miyagi from The Karate Kid. I love Mick from the Rocky movies. Like, I just love those old, wise characters uh, from the movies and books. I just, I love the concept of wisdom. (coughs) Something I aspire to. It just appeals to me. I do not like foolishness, as my kids will tell you. How do we become wise? If you like the idea of wisdom, how do you become wise? The Bible gives us some instruction about that. It says in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You're not going to be wise if you don't fear the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? It means to have reverence for God. Sometimes we grow in our faith and we, we get a little too familiar with God. Here's what I mean by that. If one of my kids ever calls me Jimmy, that's a little too familiar You know know what I'm saying? There's only two people that can call me Jimmy, my mom and my grandmother, and I don't even like it when they do it. 
But if <coughs> my kids can call me dad, which is a term of affection, or father, or reverend father, <laughs> or giver of life, but they cannot call me Jimmy, okay? So we get that way sometimes with God. <coughs> we get a little too familiar. We say, the man upstairs, or hey dude, or you know what I mean? That is not the fear of God. Reverence is the fear of God. I introduced a phrase to you guys a couple years ago. It's a Latin phrase, mysterium tremendum. It's the idea of trembling in God's presence. Shaking, not because you're cold, you're just overwhelmed. Mysterium tremendum. That's what the fear of God is referring to. It's reverence, it's respect, it's honor. It is fear in its purest form. <coughs> the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, James 1.5 says that if you, if you lack wisdom, ask God and he'll give it to you. So you start with fearing God and then you ask God, Lord, I need wisdom. I do not know what to do in this situation would you give me wisdom? And it says he gives wisdom generously. And so ask God for wisdom. <coughs> the final thing you can do, this is in Proverbs 13, if you want to be wise, walk with wise people. Don't walk with foolish people. And I think you probably know who the foolish people in your life are and who the wise people in your life are. Uh, the older you get, sometimes the easier it is to identify those two groups of people. When you walk with foolish people, you become foolish. You get into foolishness. And foolishness has consequences, right? You walk with wise people, you become wise. And can I tell you something? Wisdom has consequences, and they're great. You know, favor, uh, success, peace, joy. That's the consequences of wisdom. So you have to identify the relationships that you're in, the people you spend your time with, you spend time with foolish people, you'll end up foolish. You spend time with wise people, you'll end up wise. It does rub, rub off on you. So fear the Lord, ask God, walk with the wise. That's how you become wise. If you would stand with me, I want to pray for us uh, that God would do those three things in our lives and then I'm going to dismiss you. Lord, you said that it is better to have wisdom than to have riches. It's better for us to have wisdom from you than to have a bunch of money. And we agree with that, Lord. And so, God, I ask that you would give us wisdom, that you would do it by increasing our fear of you, God, that you would give us reverence. We repent, Jesus, of times of familiarity where we have approached you and forgot who exactly we're talking to. That you are our daddy, but you are also creator of the universe. And we are humbled that the creator of the universe does let us, uh, uh, is our daddy and lets us be his beloved children. But Lord, we fear you in a reverent way. <coughs> Lord, we also ask you for wisdom. We don't have wisdom of our own. It's, if we do, it's worldly and skewed. Give us your wisdom, Jesus, that we would know right from wrong, that we would know best from good in all circumstances. And God, I pray that you would cause us to walk with wise people. Show us who those wise people are in our lives that we can join ourselves with. And Lord, also help us to create some distance from the foolish people 
that are in our paths so that, Jesus, we have more influence on them than they have on us. I pray for your protection over us, Jesus, as you lead us to grow in wisdom. I pray that in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.